Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast, made with Zencaster. I am your host, Dr. Justin Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. On today's episode, I'm going to be taking you back to the brothel. In my previous episode, I shared with you a couple of interviews that I recorded during a visit to a high-end gentleman's club in Amsterdam as part of a study abroad course on sex and culture that I recently taught. In that episode, you heard from two sex workers, one who is a former sex worker who now works as a coach for women who want to exit the sex work industry and cultivate new careers, and the other who is a current sex worker and social worker who works with clients who have physical and psychological disabilities. Now, in this episode, I'm going to be sharing with you a couple of additional interviews that I collected during our visit to the brothel. And again, just to be clear, we visited this brothel not for sexual purposes, but for sex education purposes. We invited local experts who work in various aspects of the sex industry to come in and teach us about what sex and sex work is really like in the Netherlands. So my first guest is Renee Brouwer. And she is someone who works in a shelter for victims of human trafficking in the sex work industry. So she's going to be sharing with us the difference between sex work and sex trafficking and talk about how sex trafficking can still occur even within a framework for sex work where it is legalized and government regulated, such as the system that they have in the Netherlands. My second guest, Anna Janssen, is a sex educator in Amsterdam, and basically her job is to teach teachers how to be better sex educators. I think her work is so important because whenever we talk about sex education, we tend to talk about the curriculum that we're teaching adolescents, right? So what is it that we're teaching kids about sex? We don't talk enough, however, about how do we make people better sex educators? What do they need to know to convey the information most effectively to their students? So she's going to be sharing with us her experiences and insights on this and how we can become better sex educators. I am so excited to share these additional conversations with you because we just had this incredible learning experience in the Netherlands. And I do hope that at some point you will join me for one of my study abroad courses because there is just so much to learn about sex and culture around the world. And at some point in the near future, I am going to expand these course offerings beyond the Netherlands and teach them all over the globe. So hopefully you'll join me for one of them in the future. But for now, let's dive right in. Before we dive in, get off the couch and back into the bedroom. Blue Chew can give you the confidence you need. Blue Chew is a unique online service that delivers the same active ingredients as Viagra and Cialis in chewable tablets at a fraction of the cost. Simply sign up at bluechew.com, consult with one of their licensed medical providers, and once approved, you'll receive your prescription in days, discreetly shipped direct to your door. No doctor's visit and no pharmacy waiting line. As I've said on this show many times before, there's nothing sexier than confidence, and Blue Chew can help give you confidence where it counts. So if you could benefit from extra confidence when it's time to perform, Blue Chew can help. As a special deal for listeners, you can try Blue Chew free when you use promo code PSYCH, P-S-Y-C-H, at checkout. Just pay $5 shipping. That's BlueChew.com, promo code PSYCH, to receive your first month free. Visit BlueChew.com for more details and important safety information, and thanks to Blue Chew for sponsoring this podcast. I'm speaking with Renee Brower, and I'm going to let you introduce yourself to us. 
Hi, Justin. Thank you for having me. I'm Renee. I work in a shelter for victims of human trafficking. And we are the largest shelter in the Netherlands. We have 58 beds for people who are in a situation of abuse and unwanted things are happening to them. And so you work in the sex work industry. So I think there's this perception that in the Netherlands, where sex work is legalized and government regulated, that you don't have the problem of sex trafficking, right? And I think that's one of the arguments that people have sometimes made for why we should legalize it is that if you can legalize it and regulate it, you should be able to get rid of or at least really reduce the problem of trafficking. So tell us a little bit about what is the truth there when it comes to legalized sex work and and sex trafficking? I think trafficking is everywhere. But only when you legalize sex work, you can also see what's illegal and what's unwanted. And when you talk about sex work as a normal job, as normal work, you can build better institutions and you are more aware of what's happening around you. And you are also more aware of the unwanted situations that are happening. So you are probably better able to prevent to prevent it and to find situations where people are being abused and trafficked. And so what are the common types of issues that you see with the clients who come to you for help? Where are they coming from and what are the problems that they're they're coming to you to receive help and assistance with? Yeah, it depends a bit on the type of client that we have. We have a lot of different yeah, different sorts of people. Some of them come from, for example, Africa. They are smuggled to Europe. Uh, before they were smuggled, they were promised uh, very good jobs, high paid jobs. And then when they arrive here in the Netherlands, they find out that they have to do sex work and they are not gaining anything from it. So that's a different type of client than the people who have been working in the sex industry voluntarily for a very long time, very happily. And then through yeah, life that happens through circumstances that happen, they end up in a situation of abuse and trafficking and somebody is benefiting from them. And when they come to the shelter, they have very different questions. For them, the questions are more towards how can I find my way in the bureaucracy that comes with legalized sex work to prevent this from happening again. And the people who are smuggled from somewhere else in the world and who end up here, they have questions overcoming trauma and overcoming stigma and shame. So yeah, it varies. And so for the people who are coming to you for help, I'm curious, are these people who are working within the legalized system or are they people who are working underground in the sex work industry here? Because this is something interesting that I've learned on my travels here is that, yes, you have this legalized system for sex work, but so much of the sex work that takes place in the Netherlands takes place outside of that system. And so there's actually a lot of illegal sex work here. And this is why a lot of people argue that the model we should use for sex work is one of decriminalization rather than legalization. Because when you legalize, you then have to come up with a whole structure, a set of laws around which sex work can work. And so, for example, that might involve paying fees, getting licenses, registering. And those are all hurdles that 
people might not have the means to be able to do, or they might not want to formally register themselves somewhere as a sex worker, because then there's this paper trail of that. And we know that being in the sex work industry is stigmatized. So I'm curious, are the, are the people that you're seeing, are they working within that legalized structure or is this primarily in the underground sex work industry here? This varies again with the type of client, the ones that were smuggled from somewhere else or, well, the non-Dutch clients are working underground. The ones that are uh, that have the Dutch nationality are sometimes working in the legalized sector and sometimes working underground. And coming to your question about decriminalization or legalization, I think it has to be both. Because if you work on the stigma and the stigma becomes less, people are more willing and able to be more open about what they do for a living, that would help with the people who don't want to register. And legalizing is something... um, we are a very organized country. Everybody has to pay tax. So yeah, you have to have to make it a proper job, a normal, regular job. You have to have the same quality of or the same standards as every other job. And every job, every business has to register. Everyone working for their own, every uh, independent worker has to register. So yeah, sex workers also have to register. Another question I had related to this this is something else I've learned in the process of coming here is that sometimes the legalized system can make cases of sex trafficking harder to detect, which is, it sounds very paradoxical, right? You would think that if people are working in the legalized structure that they wouldn't be able to get away with sex trafficking. And so I'm curious if you have any thoughts or insight you can share there about how sometimes the legalized system sometimes provides a cover for people who are trafficking others. So any thoughts on how that works? Well, in every business, when there is the opportunity to to profit or to gain something for yourself, there are people who are willing to do this. We all know the, the high-functioning bankers, the, the people high up in government who are making sure that they earn some some money themselves when they're giving out permits. And in the sex industry, it's the same. In, in sex work, there are also people who who want to profit and benefit from others. And if you are able to get an ID for someone who is 17 and you make this person 19 on her fake ID, yeah, that's not might not be so complicated. So that's an easy way to benefit from someone else. So I think it's something that comes with every industry. And sex work is just an industry like every other industry. Yeah. And this has got me thinking about how one of the things I ask my students to do after they've been here for a few days and they've seen the red light district, they've seen the women who are working in the windows, selling sex out in the open. You know, at first when people come, that's a novelty. It's something that's really new to them. But I asked them a little bit later on in the trip to walk through the red light district again and to imagine if somebody was being trafficked through these windows in this very visible way, how would you know? You know, what are the signs that you would look for? And that's a totally different experience to have when walking through the red light district is because I, I think a lot of people are assuming that everybody who, who is working there is, is doing so voluntarily. But we know that there are still some people who are trafficked through that system. And so how can law enforcement, how can other people, like customers, clients, how would they know if somebody's being trafficked, if they're complying 
ostensibly with all of the government regulations. So that's always an eye-opening <laughs> exercise for my students. So I'm also curious, you know, as somebody who works with people who have been trafficked and who has extensive knowledge of sex work, what are the changes that you would want to see to how sex work is treated and regulated? How can sex work work better? Well, I think, like I previously said, the stigma is a very big thing. And sometimes you hear people say that it should be better if customers are criminalized, for example, to protect the women working in the industry. And I don't think that's the answer. I think talking to the women who work in this industry, the women behind the windows uh, who are working in the windows, talking to them, telling them about their rights, uh, something that's happening already that could be maybe more extensive to make sure that everybody knows that it's not normal if you have to give 90% of your earnings to someone else, but you have to keep it for yourself, <laughs> at least half or maybe even more. And you have to agree to the arrangement that you make with the person that you're paying some money. But the stigma is the most important thing. If people are willing to talk about it, if a client or a customer goes to a girl or a woman, a young woman, and afterwards he thinks, was she really 18? He should not feel ashamed when he goes to police to inform them that he has some doubts about the, the girl he just saw. And if he is more willing to go to police, it would be easier to track down the girls who are forced, especially in the underground sex industry that's also happening. So stigma. It sounds like there's a lot of fear and shame and stigma that all feed into this that make it very hard to help people who get trapped in that system and who who are trafficked. And so that's why I really appreciate the work that you do in trying to to help people. And we need more resources throughout the world because we know that trafficking is this big problem. And we know that there's no system of sex work that can prevent trafficking from happening. It happens everywhere, no matter whether you are in a country or culture where sex work is legalized and government regulated, or if it's somewhere where it's criminalized, it happens because as you said, there is that profit potential motivation incentive that people are seeking. And there are a lot of bad people out there who will do anything to make money, even if it comes at the expense of exploiting other people. And so I think when we're talking about sex work and sex trafficking, people tend to conflate the two and want to try and address them with in one fell swoop. But the reality is that you need separate policies for sex work and sex trafficking because there there isn't a one-size-fits-all answer that can address all of those things. So one more question for you. Since we talked about sex work and sex trafficking, just tell us what is the difference between the two? Because there are a lot of people who think that sex work is inherently victimizing and assume that anybody who is in sex work is also being trafficked. So what's the difference between these two things? The difference is force. <laughs> and sex work is something that can be a choice. And for a lot of women and men, of course, that are working in the industry, it is a choice. And it's something that they're willing to do, that they're happy to do. And that's just a job to them, like 
we also have our jobs. And trafficking and abuse is something very different. And that is something that you can't erase it. Of course, it will always be there, unfortunately. But the force and um, the abuse and the exploitation is something that has to stop. And everybody who works in sex work should be able to choose to do so. But it's the, the women that we see in the shelter that initially have chosen to work in this industry, a lot of them are very happy to go back to the sex work after they've been in our shelter. And that's because they have a lot of things that they love about their job, that they like about their job, and they, they should be able to do so, but in a way that they can earn their own money and be independent. Well, thank you so much for sharing that and for all of your other informative answers to my questions. We really appreciate you and the work that you do. And thank you for being with me today. I hope you enjoyed hearing from Renee as much as I did. I learned so much from her. And my only regret is that I didn't have longer to spend with her because she is a wealth of knowledge and she is doing such important work. Now, I have another important interview to share with you, which is with Anna Janssen, who is a sex educator in Amsterdam, who basically teaches teachers how to be better sex educators. You're definitely not going to want to miss that. But first, a quick break for a word from our sponsors. Bonnard Sex Therapy Institutes provides continuing education, certifications, and a PhD in sexology to mental health and medical professionals across the globe. MSTI is a one-stop shop for ASECT sex therapy certification requirements, including education, sexual attitude reassessment, and supervision. MSTI offers flexible payment plans and learning options. Attend from anywhere in the world and learn from experts on sex and relationships. For more information on their programs and offerings, visit ModernSexTherapyInstitutes.com. That's ModernSexTherapyInstitutes.com. Want to last longer in bed? Our friends at Permesin can help. Check out their signature delay spray, which has been clinically shown to help men last longer in bed. You can customize it for your own body and desensitize only the areas you want. Use it alone or in combination with other techniques for faster, more reliable results. Check it out and see why it has thousands of five-star reviews and is physician-recommended. Promescent offers a 60-day money-back guarantee on all orders, free shipping on orders over $10, and discreet shipping to guarantee privacy. Learn more and place an order at promescent.com where you'll also find an extensive selection of lubricants, supplements, condoms, and more. That's P-R-O-M-E-S-C-E-N-T dot com. I am speaking with Anna Janssen, and she works in sex education in the Netherlands and has lots of exciting and important information to share with us. But I'm going to first start by letting her introduce herself to us and tell us a little bit about the work that she does here in the Netherlands. Thank you. I'm actually training professionals in how they should get sex education in their work. So I teach teachers and I also train health professionals that work with children, very young children also. So people that work in daycare, in primary school, in high school. So that's what I do. I also give, I consult so people can ask advice about healthy sexual development, sexual parenting, how they can uh, answer questions of their kids. Also when the kid is four years old, for example. So all those different things. Yeah, that's mostly the work I do. And thing that I find very important to say is that I focus on the positive side, on the healthy side and not on the problem side, because I feel very strong that 
when everything is done in a healthy, positive way, you can also avoid a lot of problems later on. So it's extremely important to provide healthy sex education and not just like de-talk about condoms and don't get pregnant and those things. This is such important work that you do because you teach teachers how to talk to people about sex. And this is something we don't do a good job with in the United States. We tend to think more about just the education piece for the kids, but not in terms of educating the educators themselves. And so I think what you're doing is is really crucial. And I think we really need to have more of that back home. But you and I were talking last week about sex ed in the Netherlands, and you said some things that changed my perception of it, because I've heard a lot about how the system works over here. I've taught several study abroad courses. I've talked to a lot of locals. And we always hear that sex education is mandatory and comprehensive in the Netherlands. But something that you told me was that, yes, well, it's mandatory. They don't necessarily have to teach the same content everywhere. And it's kind of up to the schools to teach what they want. And so as a result of that, not everybody is getting comprehensive sex ed. So can you tell us a little bit more about that and how, you know, the outside perception is that the Netherlands is doing it right for everybody when it comes to sex ed, but they're at the same time failing a lot of students too. Can you speak to that? Yeah. So as you were saying, there's a lot of things that we don't teach actually. And For example, the biology class about how to put on a condom and how not to get pregnant, the anatomical way of like how does everything look and work. That's the thing we definitely do. And there's that's also mandatory in school, also in primary school since 2012. It's mandatory for primary schools to do something with sex education for their kids. And of course, in high school, it has been mandatory for many years. But if they would do like one class about it, it's also fine. And what we know is that there's a huge lack of knowledge that is not been given to the students that they're actually longing for almost because there's not really much attention for sexual pleasure, especially not for female sexual pleasure. It's not really about sexual diversity. The LGBTQI community is not very well represented. Sometimes there's a few guest teachers, but also not in every school. And it is still very much focused on what not to do instead of what to do. So the pleasure side is not is not been taken into account. Yeah, those are the most important things. And there's one thing that's actually, I find it really crazy, especially because there's a lot of people that think the Netherlands is so progressive and we do it really well. And that is that the clitoris is in only one biology book for high school classes from one publisher since 2020. So not even a year now. And I think that's not very progressive. Uh, in terms of sexual pleasure, but also how the body works. And it's so crazy that this this is just a body part for women or for people that have clitorises. And it wasn't in the books. At least there was only like this, it's a button and you can like touch it and it feels nice, but not how it works, how people people with clitorises get wet and how penis and vaginas will be also good and give a lot of pleasure for women. So that's, I think... A huge problem and I think it's crazy that it, it's now 2021 and we're still not teaching this uh, and it's just how the body works so it should be so easy and there's 
many, many taboos. So there's sometimes you have a really good teacher. And I think that's maybe the same in the United States. And you will just get lucky because he or she will tell you so, so many other, other things. And it's the same in the Netherlands that you can get lucky with your teacher and then you know a lot. And I think that we are also still focusing on the sex education in high school instead of uh, combining it with like the regular daily practices and classes in schools. So not having this as a one class a year, but just as a normal subject that's actually through the whole year, through all the classes. And you can get questions anytime from children. So educators and teachers, they can be, I think, way more well equipped and educated about this topic. And for example, I studied child development and there was nothing about sexual development from children if I wouldn't have picked it myself. So based on what you're saying, it sounds like experiences with sex education in the Netherlands are much more mixed than we might think. And the same is true in the United States. I know that there are lots of states, including where I grew up, where abstinence-only education is the focus and you don't learn much about anything other than just to not have sex and sort of the basics of penile vaginal intercourse and how a baby is made and then all the bad things that will happen to you if you do have sex. Uh, But by the same token, there are some places in the United States that are doing it really well where students are getting comprehensive sex ed. So it's also mixed in the US. But on average, you're doing it better in the Netherlands. And I think we see that translating into better sexual health outcomes. So the Netherlands has among the lowest rates of teen pregnancies, teen STIs, and teen abortions in the industrialized world. Whereas in the US, we have amongst the highest rates. Now, in the Netherlands, one of the most popular sex education programs is called Long Live Love. And earlier during this trip, I met with some of the people who have worked on that curriculum. And I think it's great. And they do talk about the clitoris. And so for the students who are receiving that program, I think they tend to be doing pretty well. They're learning what it is that they need to know. And that curriculum is used in more than half of all Dutch schools, but so it's a majority, but there's still this substantial minority that are not using that program. They're picking what it is that they want to teach. And I think something a lot of people don't realize is that there is a Bible Belt in the Netherlands. There are religious schools in the Netherlands. And so they might pick very different programs and curricula for their students. And that helps to explain why you have these mixed outcomes, because it's not necessarily the case that everyone is getting the same high quality sex ed. Now, I know that something else you do is you focus a lot on female pleasure in your work. And you talked about, you know, the importance of understanding the clitoris and how in a lot of the biology textbooks and educational materials, it's not mentioned. But what else do you do in terms of pleasure education for young women? And what do you think just in general, we could be doing better in that area? Yeah, so I think in general, we can just start with the right knowledge. So as, as I was saying, that just knowing that the clitoris exists and how it works, that's a start. But then I think there's also still, you were talking about religion and there's still a lot of Calvinism in the Netherlands, which means that there's still many people that think that sex is just for reproduction. And that doesn't help, of course. But also in terms of a long-term healthy relationship, it's, I think, extremely important if... Both people, I'm talking about heterosexual heterosexual relationship, if both people are 
are happy with their relationship, but also with their sexual relationship. And I think there's still a huge taboo on female sexual pleasure, also coming from, yeah, mostly religion. So we should definitely lift the taboo. And what I'm doing is just talking about it all the time with everyone who wants to hear it, but also getting it into the programs and also teaching people that don't have a clue. Because when I give the trainings about sex education in primary or high school, I always mention this and it's actually not really part of the training, but I think just everyone should know this because it will make the world a better place because it's also for equality and feminism. Well, thank you for sharing that and for the important work that you're doing in this area and trying to meet the needs for those who are not getting the comprehensive sex ed that a lot of other people are. So another question for you is, how can we break those taboos? How can we normalize discussions about sex and conversations about women's sexual pleasure, for example? Do you have any tips or advice that you can share with us on that subject? Yeah, I think actually a big problem with sexuality and children, for example, is that we see sex sexuality as sex. So in a very narrow definition, as penis and vagina sex or the intercourse, having sex, but sexuality is so much more. And it's also about your identity, about how you feel. It's about knowledge, about skills, about how you get the words for it, about the fact that you can have an opinion about it, about having the words to, to have a conversation about it. And I think when we would normalize this from, from a start, so from really early on, and for example, at a party, we wouldn't only ask, so how's work or how how is the furniture in your new house, but also how's your sex life and how do you feel about it? And also when people are married for 10 years, you can still ask about it because maybe something has changed or maybe they feel like, oh, I don't know if this is normal. And people, I think in sex education and definitely sexual development of children always want to know, is this normal? And normal doesn't really exist. So it really depends on the time you live in, the the, the country you live in, the, the context. So is the behavior normal? Are the questions adequate for the age, age appropriate? And the fact that normal doesn't exist, that really helps, I think, in thinking about sexuality in this really broad spectrum of things that it involves. So sexuality is so much more. And I think there's a huge fear in the combination of sex and kids, because what if sexual abuse will happen? And of course, that is horrible and no one wants it. And it happens way too often. But if we don't talk about it, that doesn't help either. So opening the conversation and start talking about it and also giving the children the words, but also allowing yourself to feel, okay, how does this feel for me? And how, where does it come from that I don't really want to talk about it? And just explore yourself also in this way, because we're not used to talk about this, but it's a huge part of everyone's life, even if you don't have sex or have intercourse or whatever. Sexuality is also about your identity. And I think we should just normalize it and see it in a very broad way instead of the narrow having sex. We're running short on time, but I have one other question for you. And I know it's a big question. I don't expect you to have all of the answers for us. But the Netherlands is a very multicultural place. You have people here from a lot of different cultural backgrounds, a lot of different religious backgrounds. And so they all have very different attitudes towards sex and sexuality. And then you also have LGBTQ persons, you have, you know, 
gender diverse persons, sexual diverse persons, persons with disabilities, you know, and so you have all of these different groups of people who have different attitudes and values and sexual needs in terms of what they need to know education wise. And so just wondering as a sex educator, how do we balance all of this? You know, I think it might be idealistic to think we could have one sex ed program that's going to work for everyone that's going to meet everyone's needs. So do you think we need to have different programs for different people based on sort of where they are? Or do you think that it's possible to have some big program that can at least address needs for most people? What are your thoughts on that? I think it would actually be great if we have one program because it's not about... So when I do the sex education or teach the teachers, it's not about me telling them how they should do it. It's mostly about opening up the conversation and knowing what's a healthy development and how they can deal with it, how they can deal with their own feelings about it, their personal background, their cultural background. And it's not, I don't think that there's only one thing that works. And I think it's really important that we stay connected to the people around us and to also listen actually and get to know the other opinions and the point of view of someone else that you would maybe never have known if you wouldn't have talked about it. So I don't think there's one way. And I think we should definitely open up the conversation. And I think if that's the main goal of programs, that would really work. So it is very interesting if you're in a class and someone comes from a from another cultural background and you're like, whoa, is that how you do it in your home? Or is that how your parents talk about it? It's so interesting. Let's maybe explain. And there are so many different points of views. And I think it's also, if you're from the same cultural background, there are still a lot of differences. So, for example, you were saying the Netherlands is not that open maybe, but there's also a lot of open people. There's also parents that will talk about sex not their own sex life with their children, I think, but are very open and they really uh, will say, uh, if you have sex, please do it at home in your own room and not somewhere on the street because then at least you're safe. There's a lot of people that will say that, but there's also a lot of people that will say, uh-uh, no sex before marriage. Yeah, and what you're saying is also getting back to the importance of educating the educators and making sure that they have the tools and skills they need to answer the questions that their students are asking, but also by being in a diverse classroom environment where you have people who are different from you and you're hearing the questions they're asking, that can be a very valuable part of the learning experience too. So thank you so much for being with me today, Anna. I really appreciate it. I appreciate the work that you're doing and keep up the good work. I hope you enjoyed your return visit to the brothel with me. Between the previous episode and this one, I hope you learned a lot about sex and culture. I am so pleased that I had the opportunity to share with you some of the things that we learned during my study abroad trip to the Netherlands, and I am so looking forward to teaching the next one, and hopefully you can join me on it. Thank you so much for listening. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, which was made on Zencaster, visit my website, Sex and Psychology, at sexandpsychology.com, or subscribe on your favorite platform, where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Laymiller and Instagram at Justin J. Laymiller. And if you want to get an inside look at what our study abroad course in the Netherlands was really like, scroll back through my Instagram feed and you can find plenty of photos. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.